And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Hey, Brave Makers, this is Tony Gapastone giving you a quick intro to episode 71. This is with our correspondent, my friend Irving Ron. Irving has done a great bunch of interviews with people who are in the writing world. So if you love literary writing and screenwriting, this one is going to be for you. Charles Yu is a great example of someone who's doing a lot of great work in this space. So check this interview out. Before you do, make sure you go to our website at bravemaker.com slash buzz if you're not already signed up on our email list do that right away because we have a bunch of free films and great opportunities coming up like our screenwriting class which next is august 27th 2020 it's four thursdays in a row got a story to tell let us help you do it only costs a hundred dollars and if you are a corporation that wants to do a diversity and inclusion webinar my colleague christina jackson and i are doing those conversations all online globally so go to bravemaker.com slash brave space for more info. And with no further ado, let's get in with Irving and Charles. Enjoy episode 71. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's Brave Maker podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest. He is an incredibly talented writer whose work uh, I deeply love. Um, his name is Charles Yu, and he's the author of four books, including the novel How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe, Fictional Universe, excuse me, which was a New York Times notable book and named one of the best books of the year by Time Magazine. He received the National Book Foundation's 535 Award and was nominated for two WGA awards for his work on the HBO series Westworld. He has also written for the upcoming shows on AMC and HBO. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in a number of publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, Slate, and Wired. His latest book is Interior Chinatown, which came out early this year in January. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Irving. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, I'm so excited to dig in. I just want to say to listeners out there, I recently read one of Charles's uh, latest books, uh, Interior Chinatown. I was so blown away by it, and I can't wait to dig into there. But I thought we could start this conversation while doing research for the interview about your childhood, specifically your relationship with your brother. I read that uh, while you two were growing up, you guys had invented uh, silly games and alternative universes, which I found very touching. Um, were there any particular games or universes that jump out uh, in your mind right now that really uh, resonate with you? Yeah, uh, there, there are some that I'm, I'm like considering whether or not they're too embarrassing to talk about. <laughs> uh, they probably are, but there was one game where we were basically like, the two most powerful beings in the universe. And uh, I being the older brother, I was the most, I was number one and he had to be number two. Uh, which, <laughs> looking back, that's probably a form of privilege that I you know, took for granted. Uh, there was a game where, uh, I don't know why we played this, but it, it may be relevant during a pandemic because it was safe indoors, but instead of like, it's basically like we're trying to play, I guess a form of like, not dodgeball, but basically like you're throwing a ball and you're trying to get it past the other guy. So that if it hits the wall behind that guy, you, you get a point. But instead of a ball, we used um, tidy whitey underwears. And <laughs> because it slows down dramatically, right? You throw it, it feels like you threw it hard and then aerodynamics takes over. And now, you, now it slows down. So you, you can pretty much always catch the underwear. Uh, I, I figure that was some kind of adaptation based on we couldn't throw a ball in the house, but um, <laughs> maybe my kids could take it up and start a new generation of underwear. 
<laughs> that, that's a hilarious game. And I, I'm wondering, you know, obviously there's a huge sense of playfulness there that you obviously shared with your brother, but I'm wondering, did that sense of play, that sense of just imaginative, I mean, just throwing underwear around, I, I don't think I did that, I would have loved to, but did, was that informed by your upbringing with your family or there particular members in your family that had instilled uh, the sense of playfulness or did you and your brother just slowly pick that up just with your relationship with each other? Um, that's a good question. If you met my parents, you wouldn't think of either of them as particularly playful. I mean, my dad's 80, my mom is 70 five now so that makes sense but even growing up I wouldn't I, I don't think of them as playful people if you know if you know them as well as we do I guess there is a side to them that you can see is somewhat uh whimsical you know like my dad has them but it's more sort of like it only comes out on very rare occasions and when it happens you're like you know like who is this uh my dad is this kind of very stoic, um, sort of on the surface, very kind of uh, equable sort of temperament. And um, and so when he does get goofy, which, you know, happens once every few years, it it's always really surprising. But then you go, oh, yeah, you you know, you had a whole life before I existed. And, <laughs> uh, and so I just don't, you know, you only know your parents, you know, from, from sort of one side. Yeah, for sure. I definitely reminds me of, of my dad. I think growing up, uh, there were very few moments in which I think he would show that side. And every time it was shown, I would always be like, whoa, it's like, you know, I discovered gold or something, <laughs> you know, and then I just felt maybe subconsciously at the risk of this turning into a therapy session for myself, I always felt, ah, maybe I should try to do more of that to bring out that side of my dad. But yeah, it's so cool to hear that you and your brother had that world that you guys lived in. I thought we could just switch gears really quickly from sort of the imaginative throwing underwear against a wall sort of thing. Um, you had mentioned that Isaac Asimov's foundation was a, was a huge influence on you um, as a teenager. And obviously, uh, I think Apple TV's coming out with a new foundation series based on that book. I'm wondering, what do you think about that series? I mean, as a sci-fi writer, that particularly resonated with you at the time, and how do you think it's influenced much of the way you see the world through a science fiction perspective? Yeah, it. I read it um, starting in about eighth grade, and um, I um, remember it as the first time that I really kind of understood the concept of world building um, that, that didn't have, if, the, if that term existed back then, which was the late eighties, I, I wasn't aware of it as a you know kid, but, um, but intuitively I understood, oh, he's invented, um, uh, you know, the science psychohistory uh, that, that, which basically is, you know, the quantification of social science. So, um, as if you could predict human behavior with the amount of precision that you, that physicists use to predict particles. Um, so I, I think the idea of a fictional uh, science was obviously influential. I ended up writing a book with those words in the title. Um, but I think it was that. It was really just this idea of, oh, um, you know, and it's, I had read, you know, I'd read comics, I had read other series that, that obviously did world building and watched movies and shows, but something about the way he did it, maybe it was using terminology or that it was of a certain scale or completeness that felt like I understood that some of the thing that was making me so attracted to it was that, um, was that it felt like I was being, um, I don't know, both, I was both participant and viewer in that way. Because I, I think that to me, the best world building has a collaborative aspect to it. It has a, you know, the, the writers that, that I, you know, including Asimov that, that sort of drew me in were ones where they suggested just enough that you were, you could conjure it in your own head and you kind of filled in the gaps and that becomes this, you know, greater than the, you know, a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts when, when the writer can uh, stimulate that kind of creativity, I think in the reader. And then you, you have this um, 
amalgam that ends up being like, oh, this is how I see this world, you know? And so, um, yeah, I, I, that's a long-winded way of saying it, it was the first thing that made me want to create worlds because I felt like I understood that as a created world. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that same guiding principle in any way has shaped how you approach short stories or even just traditional fiction outside of science fiction? Or do you use separate sort of rules for those other genres? That's a good question. Um, it, yeah, it does feel like a little bit of a toolbox where sometimes you, uh, I, uh, you know, and, and it's not a, it's not usually a very um, deliberative thing at first. You know, it's an intuitive thing. It's uh, what is this idea that's kind of bubbling up? You know, how do I kind of uh, nurture it along till it's feels like something viable or, or or how do I see if it's viable rather than just like a conceit that sort of pops in and out and if the thing feels like it has some something to it enough to then the question is like well you know what am I going to do with this you know what's the what's the thing that makes it go and sometimes it's you can hear the voice of a character sometimes it's um a rhythm to the prose, you know, uh, something about the tone that that makes me excited. Uh, and then sometimes it is, um, it's the idea of a world, you know, are the, is there a rule or are, are there three rules to this world that I can start, start to think about? So I think I don't, um, I don't often start out with that, but some once in a while the story will say, this is the kind of story you want to tell. Increasingly as I work in TV, um, I'm either asked for that or I realize that's what I should be doing because people really want to hear the rules and I'm being sort of, I don't know, something about my nature is like, I always want to try something new every time. So if someone says, what are the rules of your world? On the one hand, that's comforting and it's like, okay, I can invent some rules and that'll be fun and interesting. But on the other hand, I'm like, I don't want to make rules to this world. You know, like, why do I have to do that? Then, then I'm like, I don't know. I don't know exactly know what, why I'm resistant to that, but I am sometimes. Yeah. It's so fascinating you say that because speaking of worlds and, and rules, uh, bracketing that just for a little bit and switching gears in many ways that's related. Um, you had briefly worked as a lawyer, which I think in many ways are the profession in my very naive interpretation is full of rules. It's full of a specific world. And to hear this uh, being resistant to kind of that, it's a really interesting transition. And I'm, I'm curious, um, first of all, what prompted you initially to, to go into law and then I guess afterwards decide to depart from it? Because I wanna read something I think for our listeners here. Um, your colleague, the creator of the show, Lodge 49 at AMC, Jim Gavin, he said of you, and I quote, here was this incredibly smart guy who could really be doing anything he wanted. So how did you land in law and how did you get into writing from that? Hmm. Uh, I'll try to give the short version because the long version is not that interesting. Um, the short <laughs> version is, um, it's a very Asian American sort of story, which is, I needed, I, I felt like I wanted to do something that was at least acceptable to my parents. Um, uh, I had I had been a biology major uh, at Berkeley and I applied to medical school and I got rejected from all the medical schools that I applied to. And uh, so the question after that was, what are you gonna do now? Some people reapply. I kind of knew I wasn't meant for medicine and medicine it's not meant for me like uh and so I kind of thought well how do I delay becoming an adult for another few years but also you know um coming from you know a, a family my parents are both Taiwanese and they had moved here and they'd worked their way you know up you know and, and and established this life for us and I felt a kind of responsibility to go do something responsible so I thought, well, law school will pay me well. It'll, it'll at least tell my parents I'm not going to try to become 
a poet or something because I think they were worried that I was going to try to become a poet. And um, so I went to law school thinking it'll just be like the life of the mind. I'll read cases. I'll read theory. I'll, I don't know what I found. And, and maybe I'll teach or something. Uh, and then instead I ended up becoming a lawyer and I actually practiced for quite a long time. I practiced for more than a decade um, uh, and much longer than I thought. I thought I would wash out in like a year and a half. I thought people would be like, no, get out. You're not, you don't belong here, but I ended up doing it for a really long time. Wow. 10 years. I mean, that is uh, definitely a sizable amount of time. It makes me wonder because I remember reading that in one of your interviews, you had mentioned it felt weird to admit to people that you're a lawyer. Where do you think that feeling of, I guess, weirdness came from? Good question. I'm, I, I would say if you ask my kids this, they would agree, or they would say this first is I'm a naturally awkward person. Like I'm just someone who, even to my children, <laughs> they realize I'm not someone who's super comfortable in most social situations or in my own skin. I, I think as I get older, I'm in my mid forties, like it's different, right? Like I, I'm, I think I'm more comfortable. I mean, you, or I'm just tired, you know, like I don't have the <laughs> awkward anymore. Uh, so there's, there's a baseline awkwardness to me. And then I think I never felt quite comfortable as a lawyer because maybe the way I entered that it wasn't, even though I ended up liking a lot of aspects of it, I always felt a little bit like I had, I had imposter syndrome. I felt like, Oh, I don't really love this. And I don't know how good I am at this. You know, I was fine. I think I was confident, but I, I think it just felt like I was playing at a role rather than actually doing something. Cause I'd look around and I'd see people that were really into it and really good at it. And I thought, I want to, you know, I want to be into something, you know, that, but I know this is not what I'm really into. I, I love what these lawyers that feel like they're grownups, you know, and have serious purpose and, um, and so there's a little bit of that. And I think deep down, it was like the writer thing felt like, it just felt like a dream that people wouldn't take seriously. So it's not, it's definitely not something I would share willingly. People would eventually find out <laughs> inevitably at every job that I had. And there'd just be this weird thing of like me, you know, basically coming out as a writer, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, yes, it's true. Um, and I'm proud of it. And, you know, it's my identity, but I didn't want to share it with you guys because I didn't know how you'd react. You know, like I thought you'd make fun of me or something. I don't know. <laughs> totally. I, I can definitely relate with that. And I definitely don't want to turn it into, a, again, a therapy session for myself here. But it reminds me of, I think, a James Baldwin quote, and I'm paraphrasing. I think he said that writers don't decide to become writers they discover that they are one i'm curious to hear from you do you remember when you discovered that you were one in the capital w writer well i mean i guess i i wrote as a kid you know even in elementary school i i was writing and all throughout and then in college i was still writing so i think i, I kind of always knew that i wanted to write um whether or not it then there's a question of would I actually try to like give it a go as a call, not a calling, a pursuit. And then there's another question on top of that of like it actually being a, a profession that, you know, a, a livelihood. And those, um, those, those latter two, you know, uh, whether or not I'd pursue it as a real like dream and also could I really make a living doing it happened in stages, you know, it, it there, even until very recently, I would say the last two or three years, really, where it's like, uh, you come into your, you come into a sense of being, okay, well, I've done this for long enough. And I publish enough things where I feel like, well, uh, I'm definitely doing this, you know, like 20 years in or whatever, I've been writing for like, I, I guess, 19 years, I've been writing fiction. Um, and so it's hard to deny it, but I don't recall one specific moment where I thought now I am a writer because I feel like also if I do that, I'll immediately get knocked off my, you know, whatever, whatever it is, my little horse, you know, like get down, like who do you think yeah. you're, so uh, I, because it, it's happened to me all the time, you know, it, it, it's happened over and over again where I feel like now I've, I've reached some kind of milestone of security and then the next inevitably something, you know, happens that humbles me 
Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the process from my perspective where I think a lot of people don't really get to hear about. I think, you know, from my side, when I look at you and the career and just how much you've accomplished, it's like, oh, whoa, like, that's amazing. And then to read and to hear from you, you know, for example, in a recent profile, I think of you in the New York Times where after your third book and despite writing for many years in Hollywood and everything, you finally felt like a writer. I mean, to hear that is like, wow, even the best of the best deal with sort of that feeling, whether it's insecurity, whether it's not feeling like you belong at the table, things of that nature. And it's like, I guess as human beings, we're never too immune to things of like that. So yeah, I appreciate you you sharing that. And I, I figured, you know, in terms of like feeling like a actual writer, you had obviously, a, a, you know, written many books, but I thought before we get into your latest book, Interior Chinatown, we can talk about your work in Hollywood and specifically, I think Westworld. Um, Personally, it's one of my favorite shows, but I'm wondering, you know, uh, from your perspective, you had you had talked about, I think, in that same pro profile in the New York Times where you said, I quote, I feel like I was an existentialist from the age of five. Even as a kid, I was always obsessed with these questions. Who am I? How did I get here? What am I doing in this place? End quote. Um, as a writer and story editor for Westworld, Obviously that show grapples with a lot of these kinds of questions. How did it feel, and I don't know if I'm wording this right, but how did it feel to work on a show that felt philosophically at home or aligned with like what you felt like since you were five? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, one, I can't believe I said that. I mean, I, I love Adam Sternberg who wrote the profile and he accurately quoted me to, to say that. <laughs> and, and it's not like I, I re retract that statement, um, nor do I, am I embarrassed by how like pompous it sounds? It's just <laughs> because somehow when you make it the pull quote, cause I think they actually pulled it out at least online. And then it, it sounds like, oh, who is this person? You know what I mean? Like even with all the context and I, I, I actually really don't mind it. It's just, uh, I cringe a little bit cause I'm like, oh, that is me. <laughs> Literally, because it's true. I, I, I was like, you know, and I'm not, I don't think I'm the only kid, but I was just lying in bed when I was five going, what is this? Who are we? What are we doing? You know, like, why am I here? And, um, and yeah, it, it is, it was one of those dream come true moments. I think sometimes I focus a lot on like, you know, certain aspects of it or not feeling valid or impostery or whatever. And sometimes I think I just need to get over that because there is an element to it which is just straight up wish fulfillment and I should be really grateful. And I really am. Like, it was an incredible thing. I still kind of, six years later, I still can't quite believe, you know, it happened. You know, the, the showrunners who are married, you know, they're married, Lisa Joy and Jonah, Jonathan Nolan, they, I don't know, they sort of plucked me off the list of people that they were offered by HBO and were like, do you want to come meet with us and read the script? And it was one of those, like, I can't believe this is happening. You know, it was like the Hollywood dream. And it's what I had dreamed of all those years as a lawyer. And not, not specifically that, but just, you don't even know how it's going to happen when it happens. And it was weird. And not beyond just the kind of like super, not superficial, but the kind of like fun aspects of that process of like actually joining a room and of, feeling like, oh, I get to quit my job. You're right, to your original question, there there was an incredible, like, it just felt like, oh my God, I've been preparing my whole life for this job, you know? Meta science fiction, you know, like that has an existential philosophical vibe to it. I don't think I have any viable life skills other than to like sort of do this, <laughs> but yeah. at least somebody actually is hiring for this right now. And it was weird. I still kind of have this, I don't know, both nostalgia and like fondness for that time in my life where I was basically, you know, there, I mean, to speak for myself, but I think a few, at least a few others I know, there is a kind of like thing where you're like, how am I going to get out of this law thing? You know, like <laughs> this golden handcuffs. It, it's a good living. It's very stable. It's respectable. And you're like, and yet I know I can't retire doing this. And so to, for that to actually have been my exit, for, for me to leave law for writing when the, that was what I was hoping to do all those years, you know, it still just seems like a 
some kind of gift or blessing or something. Yeah, and and I think this is a miraculous story because it reminds me, I'm sure you probably saw it, but I think in Steve Jobs' commencement address at Stanford, I think he said you can only connect the dots looking backwards and not forward. And I wonder if, you know, five-year-old Charles were here today and be like, and he knew like one day, you know, writing a sci-fi novel could potentially influence in very similar thematic ways to one of the biggest and most popular shows of the new century, you know, probably hard to connect the dots looking forward. But I think as you're describing it and articulating it, it's, it really does connect. And it's so cool. And the way I mean, I think when I read your How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, I thought it was like, oh, this actually thematically felt like Westworld, but with more Asians, you know, in many ways. So I really enjoyed it. And yeah, I saw a lot of the thematic similarities, you know, like sort of the metafiction, questioning the nature of one's own reality. Um, and also, I think the, the physics aspects, how you're able to bring in those rules, you know, to, I thought that was really cool. Um, I'm wondering, you know, uh, still staying on sort of the Westworld stuff, as, as a storyteller, um, what did you think were some of your biggest challenges or maybe the, the story's biggest challenges in weaving together narratives that fundamentally revolved around such complicated and cerebral topics? I mean, did that feel challenging to you working in TV now that you've actually done that in the fiction sort of novel world? Or did it just become fundamentally harder because it was on screen and not on the page? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, there were two difficulties with it. I think it was a really hard nut to crack. And this is part of the ambition of the show, um, which was we're actually going to, to try to um, portray and investigate consciousness, you know, the, the kind of dawning awareness of these sentient hosts and um that would be hard enough for for you know i don't know a 20-year veteran of tv right to to know all of the to have all of the craft and, and try to apply that craft to uh basically un, an unsolvable mystery right what is consciousness uh and and yet that's what that's what the room was trying to do and to like the credit of everyone in the room the showrunners and all the other writers you know it it for all of our efforts i always felt like well of course we can't crack this nut um if we did then we would have solved what consciousness is <laughs> and and then of course you know that's my naivety naivete or whatever it's it's me not understanding well yeah but also we just need to make a good entertaining show that's not provoking you know in the end of course we're going to aim for the the stars you know and and then and i think at least the season i worked on you know because i can't speak to the other seasons but it, it the the real ambition ambition of it was something uh unusual and and i've been in rooms since then that have been just as ambition and other ambitious in other ways but i think um when you combine it with the budget and the cast and the other sort of um resources they had to make the the fully realized version of this it was you know it was i was spoiled by that experience in some ways because it was my first writing job and i didn't know how much of an outlier it would end up being. Um, and then at me as a TV writer, I think it, I, I also didn't realize how little I knew. You know, I, I think there was a period where I was in the honeymoon phase because this is, this is so fun. I can't believe it. I'm like getting to live out my dreams. And then there was a phase of, I'm totally lost. I just realized that I have no idea what I'm doing. And then a phase of starting to get my feet under me, underneath me and realizing that I could contribute in some ways. And then another phase of like, no, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's basically yeah. how it went. Like by the end, I actually felt less confident in myself than I did when I started. But I think that was part of the learning curve is realizing how little I knew about how, how TV is made. Sure, and certainly trying to explore, I mean, I didn't think about this before, and I think you articulated perfectly, but really exploring the hard problem of consciousness, which in many ways, like, there is no answer. And I think just as a way to kind of tee off from that, like, obviously, five-year-old Charles dealing with the big questions, no easy answers. Do you feel that, you know, your entire life in many ways has prepared you mentally, like, 
to, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, but to live more gracefully with the art of the unknown, the art of questions and more so in answers. Do you feel that helped you mentally grapple with the undefinable nature of working on Westworld? Or do you think Westworld was just like, oh, well, like, actually, I thought I was comfortable to questions, but turns out maybe I'm not. I think, I think yes, but I think sometimes that translates to me not being very good in a room because <laughs> I'm willing to ruminate and, and uh, what's the word, equivocate forever. <laughs> uh, if you leave me by myself in a room, I will just never come out of that room because I'll just, I don't know if you watch The Good Place, um, mm -hmm. I'm cheaty, basically. I'm not cheaty. I wish I were cheaty because one, he's, you know, super buff and nice and <laughs> smart. But I, I, I understand how, if, if it seems like anyone who, who has watched that or hasn't watched that, that it could be a version of hell to live with someone like cheaty, and you, you haven't lived with me because I do understand what it's like the hell that you put your loved ones through when you literally can't make up your mind. You know, like I, I am that guy. So that translates into thoughtfulness sometimes, but I think in a writer's room, it translates into why has that guy not talked for the last three days? Like <laughs> we need to start pitching stuff because we need to make TV. Um, I'm sure on the inside, you know, it didn't match what was on the outside, which is like, man, that guy is just, I don't know what's happened to him. He's gone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I, I can't imagine what that experience would be like. But yeah, I think I can definitely relate where I think a lot of times I find myself uh, fairly silent. And But the gears are turning, but, you know, people are wanting me to speak. So for sure. I, I want to uh, ask you about specific storylines. Um, were there particular ones that you enjoy the most exploring while working on the show? And, and if so, why? On Westworld or any? Westworld, yeah. Yeah, Westworld. Oh, wow. Um, it's hard. That's hard because I really ended up so invested in, in all of them. Um, I, I mean, I would say probably Bernard and Ford storylines as the creators of this kind of technology. Bernard in particular, I mean, the idea of, I, spoilers now, it's four years old, so I, I think I can, but just a warning. But but the nature, well, I guess I can say it carefully. The nature of what Bernard is, is, is an incredible idea. And when they first kind of told us, oh, this is what's going to happen, uh, it was like, oh my God, you know, and to wrap your head around it, I felt like, I was going to give myself a brain cramp trying to understand what it would be like to be a Bernard, you know? Um, and it was just endless fun, but also torture to think about it. I mean, I, I spent a lot of nights, you know, in my office or in the room, just like, you know, reading. And that was kind of the fun of it is like, Oh, this thing on cognitive science that I read 10 years ago, you know, I got to, what, what is that thing that I, I, you know, I'd go Google it now and, and be like, oh, that kind of applies to the, you know, or, or this thing on AI that I read just randomly somewhere. Is there a concept here that's useful? That was super fun. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably the answer. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a very fascinating storyline. I remember when I first learned the revelation, I think in the first season, you know, Bernard, I mean, it's like, I was like, whoa, you know, like what is going on? And I think it got me thinking like, wait, am I just the host, you know, <laughs> like, so yeah, I definitely, definitely got me thinking as well. Um, I thought for our listeners who are not too familiar with like how writers rooms worked, um, obviously, there's a lot of things we can talk about. But I thought we could focus on something very specific to learn more about what that process is like. And one of my actually favorite episodes, I think you co-wrote it with Lisa. Um, I think it's Trace Decay, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and it was episode eight. And there is a particular, I think, creative choice I found very interesting. Um, without going too much detail, there are a few scenes that were, you know, somewhat violent as as the show goes. But in these scenes, they were played out in slow-mo in a few of them. And in these particular slow-mo moments, I don't know if you remember, but there was the creative choice to deploy classical music. I think specifically Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, I think a Chopin uh, song, if I remember correctly, and I think one or two others. I'm wondering, like, when you're selecting a song for something like how is that creative decision made like what gets fed into it? is that part of the writing process or is that part of an editing process uh, help us understand like where music selection gets fit in into the creation or the genesis of an episode 
Yeah. Um, well, um, it, it definitely played a part in my conception of this episode. I remember pitching Lisa and Jonah in the room, some of the ideas that I had for the concept. Um, and it's, you, you have some constraints, you have lots of constraints because the story as the season as a whole has already sort of been shaped to some extent, but you still have room for your own discovery to some extent, if, you know, if it lands and if they feel like it's good. So, and some of that included, you know, either, you know, listening, what you're listening to or what might inspire or to your point, what might actually play during the episode, you know, what ended up being used during that season a lot were these sort of, these incredible like piano covers or acoustic covers of, of like a lot of 90s songs that like are personal to me because that's like sort of my college years and, you know, high school and college years. And, um, but I, you know, uh, on that show, I think the showrunners usually had a pretty specific idea of what they wanted for music. So as much as you might put it in the script and that might give people an idea of what you're thinking or what might inform tone or kind of the, um, they usually ended up, they always ended up, you know, choosing something that they had in mind. On other shows, there have been cases where I wrote something in the script and that's the song that I got used, you know, and which is crazy, you know, it's really cool. Um, so I think it varies show to show. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really great way to, to, to put it. I think for me, like, because I don't know much about it, I always find that every time a song plays, it just, I think elevates whatever scene it is to, I think, an intended mood, which obviously I think is so much of what music does, but it's just crazy how music gets you to feel so much. And I think in that particular episode you worked on and, and the music choices, it's such a contrast. You know, you have this comical scene where like people are getting these hosts, these, you know, this AI, all these AI are, are getting killed and this host is becoming self-aware in a way. And then you have like a very beautiful, you know, classical ballad playing. And it's like, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition that creates this humanism, but also I think this sense of humor to it that I felt was really cool. Um, the last thing I wanna to talk to you about, I think is uh, on a very personal level to how it relates to Westworld, but I think uh, in our brave new world, right, of artificial intelligence, and I think as we contemplate it more and more so, um, what questions did working on Westworld uh, bring up for you in regards to your own relationship with technology or even how you process artificial intelligence in our reality? Mm. Yeah, that's it. That's, um, I probably have just enough distance from it now to actually answer that. I think for a couple of years after, I was just still too close to the whole experience because it was intense. You know, we were in that room for like 18 months and I don't know if I'm allowed to say exactly how long it took, but it, it was a long time that I was, or maybe not quite 18, but I was in there for a while. And it was an education. And um, I feel like what, you know, I came out of it, if I could sum it up, I guess what I came out of it was um, an appreciation for um, the, the real depth and complexity of the issues, you know, like, I think if anything, it made me engage with it, um, less intellectually than I had, you know, I, I'd love to read books about it before you know, the idea of AI or, um, just things in that sort of field about consciousness. But I, um, to try to tell stories from it, I guess, is what it, it tied it to something closer to like the real questions, you know, like what do we care about? Who, you know, what is, what matters to us? Like the, to me, you know, even though the Bernard thing was the most sort of interesting conceptual story, Maeve's story has always been the most powerful to me. And I think Tandy Noon's performance is also incredible, but, um, but, that that to me still feels like a very high standard to aim for is to have this synthesis of like the emotional and the and the cerebral in one character in one storyline and her story is incredible to me and for for those reasons yeah i mean i i think 
And then seeing how people reacted to it, I think was interesting. You know, seeing all the Reddit threads and all the theories and all the bloggers and recappers who were like picking apart things that to the degree that you just couldn't believe it, you know, like how good they were at parsing it um, and how the level of detail to which they were paying attention. Um, so I don't know that that answers your question. I think more than anything, what it gave me was an appreciation for what it's possible to do in storytelling on that, on that level, you know? Yeah, I love that. I think one thing I've always been very fascinated by is a lot of the technology and the AI. And I think you mentioned it, the cerebral components of be dealing and I think immersing oneself in a genre like that. And I think some of the best stories, arguably, in my opinion, in sci-fi are the ones that fundamentally deal with like a human story mm -hmm. at the end of the day, right? That run through. And I felt like, I think, yeah, Fanny Newton's performance, I mean, it just as my, I think, had so much of that human component, even though like fundamentally, you know, it didn't seem like that, but that's how it evolved. And yeah, I think it's just, it's kind of crazy to think like that would be the way that we would contend with technologies. Like we may, we start imagining or we start realizing that it is really like the human connection that's like the most important. Not to say that technology is fundamentally bad, but it brings to light like what really matters, which I think is a really beautiful way that you put it. Um, I thought we could move away a little bit from, from sci-fi just because, you know, uh, I could talk about it all day because I, I love sci-fi. Um, and I feel like you, as uh, as an artist, you deal with two genres I love, sci-fi and Asian-American literature. Um, and I thought we could move on to the Asian-American literature side, which is Interior Chinatown, which is the latest book. Latest book. Um, for some listeners who, who don't know, could you give us like a brief like potted bio or blurb of what the book's about and then we can jump straight into it? Sure. Uh, it's principally about a guy named Willis Wu, who is... At the beginning of the book, he, his job is to be generic Asian man number three slash delivery guy. Um, I guess the, the quickest way to describe it is imagine um, the Asian background extra on an episode of Law and Order. That's Willis Wu's existence. So he doesn't really have a story. He just has bit parts. And the journey of the book and of Willis and, and people in his family um, is to it follows his rise basically from generic asian man number three to kung fu guy which is what he's doing <laughs> which is this kind of um i don't know how to say it but essentially it's the special guest star intermediate level role that's the highest that he can be because of essentially the bamboo ceiling right it's it's the and what the book is really talking about is um both the um or what the book is grappling with i think is 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 the kind of media representation of asian americans and how that is a way to look at what what where are asian americans in america you know like are they real americans and will they ever be considered real americans and how does how does a tv portrayal kind of reflect this sort of skewed view you know this lack of um lack of a clear place for Asians in America. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that I really loved about this was I went into it not knowing what to expect. Um, for one, um, for, re for listeners who don't know, it's written in a screenplay format. So it's very different from traditional uh, fiction format. But I went into it thinking, you know, and as I was reading it, this is so funny and it feels so real as an Asian American myself. I felt, oh, this is so relatable but I didn't expect to be moved so hard. I mean, I felt myself crying at certain times. Uh, that was a thing that I, I was really just blown away by. And I'm wondering like from a creative process standpoint, what initially sort of seeded this idea to you to write a story like this and to the creative decision to write it in a screenplay format. That's very different from what I think people are used to. How did that come about? Yeah, that's a good um, question. I. You know, I've been trying to write this novel for years and um, it just wouldn't kind of go. And and finally, kind of Willis's voice dropped out and dropped into my head. And I heard some of the first lines of the book and, and I realized that this was my way into, I think what I was looking for was a, a, something that felt like different enough 
from things I'd written in the past, um, and yet connected in a way that I felt like I could try it. So I, I didn't want to do the things I had been doing before, but I, I also didn't want to make such a departure that, you know, I'd be writing in a space that I wasn't comfortable in. And, and so when I heard Willis's voice, I thought, oh, this is, this is a way into this, to a world and, and, and with a character that really I get because, you know, and, and you know, this had happened shortly after Trump got elected uh, where I kind of had this breakthrough and I think that had something to do with it. I think that I knew that I wanted to write about a story about immigrants and a story about assimilation and whether or not we can ever really assimilate. But it, it just all felt sort of soft and fuzzy. And Willis's voice was specific and I got it. And so um, I think I forgot the second part of your question. <laughs> oh, uh, I think from, from there, it was like one of those things where I, I felt you know, the, the creative choice to use a screenplay format um, is very unique, I think, in, in fiction. Um, I personally haven't seen it done before. Uh, I guess to follow up from the question I originally asked, I guess, what was the creative decision that led to you writing in the screenplay format? And two, how did you feel like that was the appropriate medium to deliver the story? Yeah, right. Um, it was, yeah, that was, that was like, once I realized what, what the story was going to be the question was is this a screenplay and and and, and is it something that i can like, there's a couple of questions that fall out of that question which is one can i really sustain that device the whole time two will that be super annoying <laughs> and three um will people really want to look at the courier font for 250 pages and i still don't i mean despite the fact that the courier font has been a friend to me since college when I used it to expand the size of my college essays, I, it doesn't look good, you know, like it looks all right in the screenplay. There's a reason why I think people read it because it's, uh, it is what it is. But um, I, I felt like that had to be done that way, just visually, even though it'd be nice to have a prettier font. In terms of the actual format, um, it was a real question, you know, and it's like, I think what ultimately the format does is allows me to do um, the thing that got me the most interested in it in the first place, which is we're in a story, but we're not in a story, you know, to have two levels operating at once, the script and the subtext, right? And um, without that, I thought it would it could get a little too confusing. I think it's confusing even with that because sometimes people are like, well, what are the rules? Because they seem to be talking out of their outside of their script right now, or like other times they're in script, but they're still out of their role. So what are the rules of that? So but that said, it having it play as there's an official narrative and there's a kind of sub sub narrative um, was the was to me felt like the perfect way to tell that story. Yeah, and it read so easily. And I mean that I think in, in, in the most, you know, complimentary way, like it felt like I was reading a novel despite I think the format, despite the courier font, which felt a little bit odd in terms of reading it as a novel. It reminded me, I don't know if you read it, but early this year I picked up the entire scripts for Fee Waller-Bridge's Fleabag. I think she had published it as a book. And I just remember I completely devoured that in like one or two settings because it just felt like so much like a book, despite the fact that it exists in the script. And that was the closest example I could find that felt very similar as an experience of yours. So I just felt as I was reading it, you know, here in China, I was like, oh, wow, this is so riveting and gripping as a novel, despite the fact that it looks like a script. Um, it reminds me, I think you had mentioned in one of your interviews how writing fiction traditionally in a novel versus a script writing is almost like playing two different instruments in the same band, but you're still delivering music at the end. You're still delivering the story. Do you feel like fundamentally there's some stories that are better reserved for the screen versus the page? And how do you decide like as, as a writer, what stories should be on the page versus the screen? How do you kind of think through that process? Yeah, I wish I had answers to that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I find myself asking that you know, weekly at least, if not daily. Uh, because that's kind of my thing now where I am both writing for television, developing projects of my own, and also 
still trying to write fiction. And um, I think usually the story tells you what it wants to be. I mean, that sounds mystical, but it isn't at all. It just means uh, you're, you'll know, you know, it, it feels, it, it will gravitate toward one or the other. Um, I, I still think, even though there have been admirable attempts, I still think because TV and film are visual media, you know, it's a visual medium. Um, there are certain interior states, certain kinds of, um, you know, if you're playing a lot with time, if you're playing a lot with um, interiority, it's really hard to depict that, you know, sort of in a, an emotionally compelling way on TV or, a, or a, a way that really mirrors what prose can do because prose is activating your brain in a different way, I think, right? If you can't, that said, I think it's what the visual medium can do is get you to um, places that uh, have a depth and a, and a richness that, that is hard to match, you know, both with the pictures and the music and the dialogue, you, you can, you can also achieve things there that probably would be hard to, to, to get in the, in a novel. So yeah, I think there, that's what I'm finding is, is I'm learning that there's overlap, but they're not, they're not the same at all. Totally. Totally. And I, I think this goes to show how, how I think amazing of a prose writer you are, but also as, you know, a screenwriter where it becomes clear in interior time town is like, yes, it is text. Yes. It's a literary experience, but I felt maybe it was just me, but I felt the scenes, the exposition that you painted were just so visceral. Like I felt like I was actually watching it in the real that is my mind. And I thought it was brilliant. I think for listeners who, who don't have a lot of context, I want to read a few lines from the book that I just found so hilarious, which I, I, didn't go into expecting it to have comical elements, but I was just so blown away. And I felt myself as a comic writer, just like jealous that you came up with such great jokes. But uh, for listeners, um, there are a few ones like in response to, I think what Charles said earlier about the professions that Willis Wu wanted to be, uh, there are a few. Disgraced son, delivery guy, silent henchman, caught between two worlds, guy who runs in and gets kicked in the face, striving immigrant, generic Asian man. Um, there's another line uh, or a dialogue where uh, this takes place inside the restaurant and the exposition says, dead Asian guy is dead. <laughs> and, then, and then one of the characters in, the, in this TV uh, law or cop procedural show, uh, white lady cop says, he's dead. And then black cop dude, uh, black, black dude cop says, looks that way. <laughs> I just felt like that that dialogue was so hilarious. It's just like, there's not much to it, but it's just well, the way one reads it, it's funny. And then the last thing I wanted to read was, there was one line where, the, where one of the characters says, yeah, matching pillows and shit, that's for white people. And I just totally lost it when I read it. I was wondering, you know, um, you're, you're known a lot for your science fiction. You're known a lot for your short fiction and everything. And obviously humor is just one tool in the toolbox. When you're thinking about deploying humor in this in interior Chinatown, how did you go about thinking about balancing the intended outcome of humor, which is delight and joy and laughter with sort of a subject that, you know, it can be racy, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, weighty topics like immigration, Asian American identity, a diaspora, things of that nature. Um, how do you think about approaching that in, in a delicate space? Yeah, um, it, it helped me essentially because I, I think I was afraid to write about something too weighty. I was afraid to get in over my head essentially because I'm not sure I'm equipped to do it. And I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to wait in 50 pages in and find out, Oh yeah, I can't, this is not me. It's not sounding like me. And, and so by keeping it light, you know, relatively light, um, and I don't mean to say that I make light of the topics, but I think that the, the tone that felt like, well, it's never, this book isn't taking itself too seriously, even though the topics are serious. You know, um, I think having a TV lens on it helped too. It's like, we're not necessarily talking about um, the whole history of racial injustice in America. We're talking about the TV depiction of racial stereotypes 
that that necessarily gets into some of that stuff, but um, it it helped me feel like okay, uh, this is a kind of more palatable way for me to feel like I can wade into this territory without, you know, getting yeah getting into stuff that I didn't feel equipped to get into. Yeah, and I think as as a reader, I felt that you know, it was full of delight. I was laughing a lot of the times, but it made the, it made the discussion around it internally for me, the monologue, the kind of process, the ideas that you're, you're delivering, I think much easier, right? It was easier, I think, to ruminate on it because they had a sense of delight. And I think joy to, I mean, Willis's character, even older brother, I mean, all your descriptions, I think, you know, um, <laughs> the description of older brother, Willis's older brother, you say, quote, in the, in the book, Older brother is the guy who makes every kid in Chinatown want to be better, taller, stronger, faster, more mainstream, and somehow less at the same time, and somehow less at the same time, makes every one of you want to be cooler than you're supposed to be, than you're allowed to be, gives you permission to try. And, and I felt like as I was reading passages like that, it was like really relatable, I think, but also just you would have these passages like that where it's like, yeah, like there's a, there is that underbelly of humor to it that makes it feel like oh yeah it's it's much more digestible so i really appreciate how you deploy humor i thought it was really creative um i'm wondering one thing uh that stuck out to me that i don't know much about is as you're writing this what was one thing that you went into this project feeling like you had an, a fairly confident assumption about that just as you were doing it it was completely challenged or just turned upside down like what is one thing that you mm. i don't know felt wrong about your assumption going into it? Well, I can think of a couple of things. Um, one is sort of process related. Um, and that this probably generally applies. So this isn't specific to this book, which is there's this initial rush of like, oh, wow, I finally got a live one. You know, like after years of wandering, I finally got, I'm stalking my prey, but I see that there's a real thing here to, to go after and that you know the way it manifested was a bunch of the early sections of the book sort of came out right away and this doesn't happen to me very often but I think it says something usually when some of those lines that are ended up in the final book were almost word for word what I what I wrote like years before because I think they were the culmination of lots of subconscious churning and um and they just came from a really raw, real place. Um, but once you get past that, it, there comes the really hard work of like, oh, but this can't be a 51-page book. Like, there's no such thing. <laughs> like, it's not a short story, clearly. It's not a novella, even. It, I, I've got to figure out beyond this funny idea and framework and interesting concept, where's the emotional story? So I guess that's the that probably has happened to me on, you know, well, definitely both novels, but also um, other things I've written. It's like finding the real emotional, like, thing that makes this matter. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have a, a better one than that. I feel like that's sort of, uh, it's remembering too that, and I have to be reminded of this every time, that ultimately, you know, you want people to care about what you're writing and you want to care about it. And um, even though there's a lot of work to be done and like, what are the rules of the world? What's the logic of this interior Chinatown? Um, bringing it back to the characters. For sure. Um, I know uh, we're running up against time. I don't want to be very conscious because I know you're very busy, but I thought the, the last thing I could probably ask you in regards to, I think, interior Chinatown is how do you think Charles, you, you as a, as a person, and perhaps the nature of reality, to put it in that way, has, has changed prior to you writing Interior Chinatown and, and after, now that's been out for a few months, do you think there's been a delta in, in how that, how writing this book has changed you as a person? Hmm. Um, well, it, 
I don't know. That's a good question. That's a really good question. I'm not sure I'm far enough away from it to have like a, the right answer. Like I might look back on this interview in a couple of years and be like, oh, what are you thinking? But I'll give you the preliminary, totally hasty answer, which is I'm really glad I got it out because it was a lot of years in the making, even though it's not a super long book. Um, it was so necessary. Um, and I'm proud that it's out in the world, even though I think, and maybe this is just me, but I, I think it's not, which is, I, it's hard for me sometimes to look at the thing that I spent all those years crafting. I, I still wanted to be better, you know? I can only see like, oh, I would've, you know, what, what could I do with that now? Um, and yet, like other things that I've written, but probably this more than anything, if I had not written this, I probably could not have moved on with my life. Mm. But in some ways, I kind of want to move on now. You know, I, I, now I'm excited. I don't know what's next exactly. I'm already noodling around with other ideas, but um, I think it was almost like realizing that there's a whole bunch of things that I am interested to tackle in ways that I haven't tried before and like excited to go try to tackle them, you know, now that I got this off my chest. Yeah, I think that's such a that's such a wonderful answer in many ways because one of the things, just the last thing I'll say about this is in response to you is that I think reading Interior Chinatown in many ways was a very uh was a very eye-opening experience to me in the same way I felt watching the farewell recently. It was an eye-opening experience in the sense that the farewell, I think for listeners who don't know, you know, it's a it's a very it's a very Asian story, but also a very human story. And I felt that what I think in regards to Interior Chinatown was putting commentary on was that in so much of media and film, you know, a lot of Asian characters get reduced down to tropes, right? Where there are yeah. stereotypes and they're not fully fleshed out. But I felt, for example, watching the farewell, these characters, while they are Asian, they didn't they weren't acting in accordance with those tropes. It's just that their background merely informed their stories, but it didn't dictate their stories. It, you know, they were, those characters were represented as fully fleshed out human beings with fully fleshed out interior. And I felt like the title Interior Chinatown in many ways, both as a nod to like, you know, the screenwriting and interior exterior, but also I think from my perspective, a real emotional, I think, touching lens and, and I think filter into like, Asian characters as fully fleshed out interiors, like with full lives. And I think Interior Chinatown, you know, from my perspective, not only did it paint that, but it painted in a really, I think, creative way, which is that it inverted that by first starting out with these tropes, right? Where these characters may not seem like they're fully fleshed out, but it's clear by showing it through the tropes, we're seeing such an interiority to these characters as they evolve in a way that I think sheds light on such really important issues. So um, I think for listeners out there, uh, definitely check it out. I've been definitely recommending it to a lot of my friends, especially my Asian American friends. I mean, I just totally love it. It's definitely my top 2020 pick. Not that anyone wants to publish my list, but just putting that out there. Um, I thought uh, before we uh, end this interview, I thought we could just uh, end on a few fun lightning round questions. Great. Um, if you'd be okay with that. Yeah, sure. Um, so first things first, uh, vanilla or chocolate ice cream? Chocolate. Okay. Uh, if you had to make your own zombie movie, what would your zombies be like? How would they be different from stereotypical zombies? How would they be similar? Wow. Um, I think my zombies would, um, I think most zombies are not first person zombies. So I'd want to do a first person zombie story, even though they don't have brains. Yeah. Uh, it seems like an inherently challenging thing to do, but I'd try that. I love it. In interior zombie. I love it. Um, uh, imagine you could devote a year to researching anybody's biography. Who would your subject be? I think it'd probably be a scientist. I just don't know which one. Um, I'm going to punt on that for a second. Is that okay? Sure thing. Of course. Uh, here's hopefully uh, one that's related to your field um, a bit more so. Uh, aliens have landed on Earth and have offered us their advanced technology in exchange for an unlimited priority access to one of humanity's favorite carbs. On behalf <laughs> of humanity, what carb would you give up to the aliens? Oh, so so I can't. Humans can't have this carb anymore. In exchange, we get access to their advanced technology, but we can't eat this carb anymore. Oh wow. Uh. 
Well, when I think of carbs, I'm thinking rice, bread, and noodles as the three. As much as I love all three, I'd have to give up bread because <laughs> rice would be the last one I'd give up. I cannot live without rice. Definitely, for sure. Um, here's the last one. If you did not have to sleep, how would you spend the extra eight hours? <laughs> not working. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, Charles, thank you so much for, for being so generous with time. I had a lot of fun with this interview and I, I learned a ton. It was so great to hear your wisdom and just how you approach such a intractable field, in my opinion. And so uh, thank you for being on the show. Um, where can people find you online or the internet? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Charles underscore you, Y-U. And, um, and I have a website, uh, charlesuauthor.com. Um, so can check there for updates um i had kind of a tour this year but most of it got kind of put online but there's still some stuff going on later this year that i'm excited about so um yeah cool well thank you charles again for being on the show um stay tuned for next week's episode thanks for listening to the brave maker podcast subscribe give us a rating and share with a friend BraveMaker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Brave stories change the world. You are the story.